All right, well, let's do it. Genesis 38, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. If you are visiting with us this morning for the first time, we do what's called expository preaching, where we work through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Um, if, if all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, uh, that word all simply means all, all scripture. All means all, and that's all that all means. Uh, then that means that this passage is also inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Uh, and so all of it needs to be preached. Uh, Genesis 38 is one of those passages that if you're not committed to expository preaching, you don't preach Genesis 38. Uh, Genesis 38 is so ripe with sexual sin and perversion, it, it, would, it would rival anything that Hollywood can produce. In this chapter, we see prostitution, pagan worship, we see deception, and we see God striking multiple sons of Judah dead. And last week's text began with the, these simple words, these are the generations of the, uh, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. And so we've hit this new uh, track here in, in Genesis where we've been talking about the life of Joseph. And, and certainly that's what we saw, right? As, uh, last week in Genesis 37, it was, it was working through Joseph and what happened to Joseph uh, by his brothers. Well, today's text speaks about Joseph's uh, half-brother. It's Jacob's uh, fourth son from Leah. His name is Judah. Now remember, Leah is the wife that Jacob uh, didn't want Leah was the wife that Jacob didn't love. And today's text is the fruit of that. Last time we saw Judah, he, had, he was convincing his brothers not to kill Joseph. Remember, he's the one that said, let's, let's sell him. And, and instead of killing him, let's make a little money off of him. And then let's tell that the, our father that he must have died. And so what I want to do in, in reading through this text is, is let's just put it out there, Right? Let's, let's get what the text is saying, and then, and then from there, we're going to refer back to it throughout the sermon. We'll, we'll probably go verse by verse, but there's going to be a, a few where we just kind of skip through, um, just because it's very conversational. So um, Genesis 38, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, 30 verses, uh, so that we can get a running start on everything else. Uh, and it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Herah. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son, named him Shelah, and it was at Chezib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, his name, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife, perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so, then, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. 
Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that, he, that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, Well, what will you give me that you may come in to me? He said, Therefore, I will give you, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed, removed her veil, and put on her widow's garments. Now when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Anayim? But they said, There's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, well, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man in whom these things belong. And She said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. And it came about at that time she was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, the bro- his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. What a mess. And I told you we'd be in for a treat this morning. Uh, I sent out a text early last week to our elders, and I said, boy, we need to make sure and provide an alternative for our kids uh, for church. And Cain immediately replied back, and he said, I'll, I'll accept that challenge, and I'll take care of it. Mark immediately replied back, and he said, if you need any help from, if you need any help from me, then let me know. And I replied, can you preach for me this weekend? <laughs> and, and I was told that he was talking to Cain, not me. Uh, <laughs> And so before we dig into Genesis 38, can I just say from the outset, it's good. It's powerful. And like most of the passages that we work through, there is a lot more in here than we know. And it's messy. uh, But it's a mess that God cleans up for his glory. And, And when Judah was in the midst of all of this, when Tamar was in the midst of all of this, 
I doubt there was any way that, that they would have guessed how much good would come from this mess. You know, we've all been in, in tragedy and confusion and, and times of our life that made absolutely no sense at the time. It seemed to have no purpose at all until years and years later. And even for some, the years and years later, it didn't help either because it still made no sense. I mean, Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers. He was sold to Potiphar as a slave. He was lied about to his father. He was falsely imprisoned. But when he came out on the other end, he's the rescuer of Israel. But I, I, I'd just be willing to bet that it didn't make any sense to him when he was in the pit. It didn't make any sense to him when he was sold to Potiphar. It didn't make any sense to him when he was falsely accused and thrown into prison. In fact, we'll discuss it in another sermon, but I believe one of the reasons for enslavement in Egypt was to keep the Hebrew people from intermarrying with the Canaanites. So what I want to do in taking this passage, I mean, what if, what if you're going through some tragedy and, and, and you, it just makes no sense and it's confusing and you're hurting and, and there's rebellion and, and all kinds of stuff, but you could see the end. What if you knew that God was going to redeem all of this for his glory? What, what if you knew that, that this was not going to last forever, that this was just a moment in your life? It's a season. It's not a direction. And, and eventually, glory is going to be had and joy is going to be had and, and, and you're going to be happy and full and satisfied. Like, what if you could do that? What if you could look at today's circumstances and the difficulties and, and know in the future it was going to be okay? I'd help you to get through today, wouldn't it? So I want to approach Genesis 38 that way. I want to look all the way fast forward um, to the book of Revelation where we see the lion from the tribe of Judah. I want to take the darkness of, of Judah in chapter 38 and look at it in light of the glory of the lion from the tribe of Judah in the book of Revelation. You see, because I think if we go there and see the ultimate fate of Judah, then it's going to make some sense. It's going to help us to get through like this passage. And so we get to Revelation 5. And in Revelation 5, there's this climactic scene where, where the apostle John, he's distressed and, and, and weeping because he said, is, is there anybody, is there nobody that's worthy of, of opening the book and breaking its seals? So look at Revelation 5, verse 4. John speaking, he says, Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And then I saw between the throne with four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he, he being the, the lion from the tribe of Judah, right? He, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, you, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Worthy are you to take the book 
and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your own blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is the crowning glory of the tribe of Judah. This is Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David, and he is presented here, not as a baby in the manger like we just celebrated, right? But as God in all of his glory. Revelation 5 is a far cry from Genesis 38. Genesis 38 is a mess. Revelation 5 is God fixing the mess. It's him redeeming men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And, and then as we work backwards, we see more in, in, in Matthew's genealogy. Right, The first fourth people listed, Judah, Judah and Tamar, coming from this, this Genesis 38 mess. You see him in the book of Luke proving that he is from the tribe of Judah. And then we keep working backwards and we get to the book of Ruth, and, and Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a foreigner. And she married into the tribe of Judah. And as a foreigner in a foreign land, she was destitute. Her husband died. And then initially she was turned down for marriage, but the ultimate end of Ruth is a child who was going to be born in her line and a line that would lead to King David. And what tribe do you think King David was from? The tribe of Judah. And so King David came through a Moabitess woman named Ruth. How in the world did all of this come about? Well, let's keep moving back to Genesis 38. In fact, let's go to Jacob's last will and testament in Genesis 49. This, Genesis 49, this is where Judah is given prominence. Now, not just in Israel's history, this is Judah is given prominence in, in redemptive history of the world. And in chapter 49, Judah prophesies over his 12 sons. And boy, if we had time to look at his 12 sons, we, we would, but we're going to pre we'll get there eventually. Um, but I want to look at the first four sons. Okay, Genesis 49, verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. Anybody got any kids like that? Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben's the firstborn. And the blessing goes to the firstborn. And Jacob is saying, no, Reuben, you're disqualified. He's disqualified because he slept with his dad's concubine. In the New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, this type of sin, this is a sin not even the Gentiles do. Well, then if Reuben isn't qualified, well, then why not Simeon or Levi, the next two in line? Look at Genesis 49, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce." and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Reuben was disqualified from the blessing because of his sexual sin. Simeon and Levi were disqualified from the, the blessing of being a part of the Messianic line. Why? 
because of their murderous rampage. They had anger issues. Now, if you're thinking like I'm thinking, after reading what we just read in Genesis 38, like Judah ain't exactly Mary Poppins practically perfect in every way, right? Judah slept with harlots. Judah said his daughter-in-law should be burned for playing the harlot. Judah's the one who suggested to make a little money off of Joseph. So what's Judah's prophecy? Look at Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter, he says, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. This is a blessing. He is giving him the blessing and, and he gives none of his other sons this kind of blessing. None of them are, are promised continual power and dominion and authority and preeminence and blessing. None of them get that. In fact, this is even greater than Joseph. Joseph was his favorite, right? Joseph got riches. Judah got the eternal kingdom. Eventually in biblical history, you know what happened? Judah's, Judah's riches actually rise above Joseph's. Moses doesn't sugarcoat Genesis 38. He doesn't try to make Judah better than he is. And actually, I think this, that's one of these things that just authenticate the scriptures. Like Judah is, is the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Like he is in this line, right? Like why would you put this kind of stuff about the heroes of the faith? Nobody writes that. So this actually authenticates the scripture. Moses doesn't sugarcoat it. He also doesn't doesn't take a passage like this and make it into a theological statement. Some, I, I listened to so many pastors this week preach this, and some of them are using this, and, and the whole purpose of their, the, the sermon is to say, don't use birth control or sleep with harlots. That's not what this is saying. But I think the tension that, that Moses creates in Genesis 38 has the reader wondering. I mean, think about all this mess that's going on. But the, the theme has been throughout Genesis, the book of Genesis, is the Messiah's coming. Right? The Messiah's coming. He's going to come through uh, the, the seed of the woman. And, and then he works all the way through. And finally, you get to Judah. And, and you go, where's the Messiah going to come now? I mean, this is the best. And yet he says, these are the generations of the sons of Jacob. Reuben disqualified for sexual sin. Simeon and Levi disqualified for anger issues. And then there's Judah. This Judah is going to lead all the way from a harlot named Rahab. A one-time harlot, we'll say, named Tamar. An adulterer named David. To eventually become the lion of the tribe of Judah, King Jesus. This chapter is not a side note. Right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't like suddenly go, oh, why are we having Genesis 38 in there? Because 39 goes right back to Joseph. Genesis 38 is a vital part of the book of Genesis that helps us to understand the future glory of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
It's actually a perfect part in the story of Joseph. In Judah, what we see is how God can change an unrighteous man and make him into a righteous man. In Judah, we see God's providence and and amazing grace. And you go, how in the world do you get that from Genesis 38? Three points. Number one, Judah's messianic line in jeopardy. Judah's messianic line in jeopardy. Verse one, it says, it came about at that time, Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hirah. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. Now think about this. In the mind of the reader, if, if you didn't know anything else, this is the first exposure that you've had to this. In the mind of the reader, Joseph is gone. All right, the favorite son is gone. His father thinks he's dead. The caravan moves away, and Joseph's in tow. Who knows? Maybe he's being pulled. He's got his hands in shackles, and, and they're pulling him behind a wagon. Like this, this is the picture that's going on in, in, in the reader, the first-time reader. And, and then the focus just moves from Joseph, because what of Joseph now? And, and it moves right over to, to Judah, and, and what's Judah doing? He's starting a problem, and immediately see a problem. I'm starting a family, and immediately he's starting a, you see a problem starting. Throughout Genesis, God told his people, don't intermarry with the people of the land. Remember Abraham, he forbade his servant to get a wife from the Canaanites. Remember Isaac, he told Jacob the same thing. Judah pays no attention to any of that stuff. He marries a Canaanite. This is a sinful act. And it really shows us, it demonstrates to, to us, us a heart of rebellion against God. But, but even though that, that he's in rebellion, God actually blesses him with three boys. Look at verse 6. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Now, think through Genesis. I mean, we've seen some really bad stuff happen in Genesis. How bad do you got to be? for God to just take your life like this. I mean, we have no clue what he did. It just must have been terrible. Now, now the next part of the text is, is a bit confusing for us because we don't have this custom in our day. Um, but, but think about this. Ur is dead, and he and Tamar have no kids. Okay, we've talked about the stigma of not having kids, right? But that's where we're at. Look at verse 8 now. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform uh, your duty as a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. Now, in the Hebrew world, this is God's way of preserving the lineage of the firstborn and protecting society's most vulnerable people, widows. It's called leveret marriage. I know many of you have heard of that. The idea of leveret marriage is the next younger brother marries his older brother's widow, okay? Remember about inheritance now. The firstborn gets double the inheritance along with the blessing. 
And so as we talk about this, lever marriage and everything else, this is descriptive, not prescriptive, right? This is describing what happened. It's not saying that we need to do this now. So you got wives and younger brothers going, Phew. all right. In leverant marriage, if a man dies without, a, if a married man dies without children, the firstborn, if he dies without children, the surviving brother was honor bound to marry his widow for the purpose of producing an heir for his brother. Now that heir assumed the vacant spot on the family tree and also got the inheritance of his dead father. So now think about this. In Judah's case here, Judah had three sons. So his inheritance would be split into four parts with the older son getting two shares and each of the other sons getting one share. So if Ur's dead, Onan then gets two-thirds of the inheritance because he's now the oldest. Shelah gets one-third. So if Tamar has a son, uh-oh, Onan's inheritance drops back to the fourth. So Tamar getting pregnant is a huge loss for Onan. And it was Onan's job to take care of Tamar, to honor her, but instead of honoring her, he uses her. He, for his own pleasure, and he just makes sure she doesn't get pregnant. Why? For his own pleasure. I mean, the whole purpose that these guys are even married is for Tamar to get pregnant. And, and in the ancient world, there was all kinds of shame that was put on a woman who couldn't get pregnant. In fact, if she were to die without a, a male descendant, that was like the equivalent of, of like being erased from history. And if she couldn't get pregnant, then, then the blame of that and the shame of that was put on her. And so that's why people go, oh, this is a birth control thing. No, it's not. This is a passage on the consequences of mistreating your wife and disobeying God. Onan is more concerned about pleasing himself than he is about pleasing God. He certainly is not trying to please his dad. He's not trying to please his brother's line, which is ultimately Jacob's line, Isaac's line, and Abraham's line. So just like God did to Ur, God kills him. So now we have two dead sons and a widow. And remember, now, and there's no family line for Judah. So Tamar goes back to live with her dad until Shelah is old enough to marry her. Well, that's how it's supposed to be. But now think of yourself as being Judah. This woman's cursed. I got two dead sons, and the only common denominator is her. And so point number two is Tamar's desperation in action. Tamar's desperation in action. Look at verse 12. It says, Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died, and when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. So we don't know how much time has, has transpired. We just know it's enough time for Shelah to grow up. We know that it's enough time where she should have had a husband. He was grown enough to do that. And, and so before, before like hitting too hard on her, for the whole harlot thing, 
Can we at least give her some credit that she's the only one concerned about preserving Judah's line? I mean, isn't that what God's concerned about? And that's what we've seen right throughout Genesis. I mean, somewhere in her mind, she has to be wondering where her husband is. Who knows, maybe her dad's getting old. She's living with her dad and she's wondering, well, if he dies, like who's going to protect me? And how is God going to fulfill his purposes? And so sheep shearing time is, is party time in Canaan. This is when fertility rituals and cultic practices occurred. And part of those rituals would inevitably be cultic prostitution. Tamar knows this. And she dresses as a prostitute to lure Judah into action. And listen, I am not defending Tamar. But, but I, I, I need to emphasize, Judah wasn't exactly doing what, he, what was right either, right? And her plan works perfectly. And they negotiate and they come up with a price. And the price is a goat. But Tamar is so crafty. She looks around and says, I don't see no goat here. I mean, you're not going to rip me off. Why not give me a pledge? We might say, Why, leave your credit card. Right? Leave your ID. Leave your passport here. That way I know that you'll be back and you'll give me the goat that you promised. Like, well, what do you want me to leave? Well, leave your seal and that cord and that staff in your hand. And I'll just hold on to those until you bring me my goat. Now, these aren't like minimal things. These are significant items. His staff probably had the, the family line carved into it. The seal is, is probably like a, a huge medallion that would have been used to, to seal documents and to attest to their authenticity. It was more like, I kept thinking signet ring, but it wasn't a signet ring, it was more like signet bling. I mean, this big piece of metal just hanging there. And, and, and it hung around his neck by the cord. Right, so give me the cord and the bling and the, and the staff. It's his wallet. Give me your wallet, give me your credit card. This is, this is an ID that was unique to him. She knows what she's doing. Like she's got assurance now. This is her deposit. The deal is done. Then it says, and she gets pregnant. The fact that she's pregnant is not a surprise. Who the daddy is, that's a surprise. She was supposed to be pregnant by Shelah, not Judah. And in, his deceit, in her deceit, she fools her father-in-law into doing Listen, she fools her father-in-law into doing what, her, what his son should have done. And, and you know, this is when the text, it kind of switches up a little bit. It goes from being a bit um, grotesque, can we say that? A bit grotesque, a bit perverted, to being a bit comical. Abraham sends his friend with a goat to pay the prostitute, his friend's wandering around the village with this goat and asking, where's the prostitute? There ain't no prostitutes here. So he goes back to Judah, and Judah's embarrassed, but he doesn't want to be a laughing stock and, you know, just going around and continuing to ask for her. And so in his mind, he just washes his hands of the whole thing, which brings us to point three, Judah's stunning revelation. His stunning revelation. This is where we see the grace of God on display. We know the end of the story. It's almost unfair for us to read it. We know the child is his. Judah doesn't know that. 
verse 24. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. Why in the world did Judah want her to be burned? I think burning her gets Shelah off the hook. Now he doesn't have to marry this cursed woman. Now we get to get this unlucky lady out of our family. And so they drag her out to be burned publicly. Look at verse 25. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. In other words, I have DNA evidence. I know who daddy is. Uh Uh-oh. And this is the turning point in Judah's life. Now listen, don't miss this. Those words, please examine and see, translated from the Hebrew, hakaranah. These are the exact same words that Judah and his brothers used when giving Joseph's bloody coat to Jacob. Please examine to see if these are, this is your son's coat. Hakar na. Do you, do you recognize these? It's like saying, do you see what you have done? Will you own your own sin? 26. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her. Again, he is busted. Tamar's motives are revealed. Judah's sin is exposed. He is the father of the child who should have been his grandson. But he didn't obey God, and he didn't give his son to Tamar. And Judah immediately realizes that that the one he is condemning has every right to condemn him. And, And he acknowledges his wrong immediately. And he takes the blame off of her, and he puts it on himself. I mean, think about this. The Canaanite woman... Listen to the statement. The Canaanite woman is more righteous than the grandson of Abraham. I mean, this is a wake-up call for Judah. <clears throat> it's your staff. It's, it's your cord. It's your seal. You can no longer cover up what you've done. And so what does he do? He does what I hope we would all do. He repents. It would be completely inappropriate for him to marry her but completely appropriate for him to take care of her. And that's what he does. Look at verse 27. It came about at the time she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So his name was Perez. And afterward, his brother came out and who had the scarlet thread on his hand. He was named Zira. This is really beautiful. You, you see what God does here. Think about Judah's biggest concern. Judah's biggest concern for not giving Shelah to Tamar is he didn't want his son to die and left without a son like his two brothers. And what does God do? He gives him two more sons. 
And now Judah has three sons again. And you can just picture this, this chapter ending and, and Judah's holding his twin boys and, and the promised blessing is coming through Perez, the second born. This is the awesome providence of God. Judah is a bad guy who got tricked. His original response is horrible, but his ultimate response is honorable. And Judah is a picture of God cleaning up the messes that we made. And that's why we started in Revelation 5. I wanted to see the lion from the tribe of Judah who is, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals. Because God is in the business of, of taking messes like this and messy marriages and, and messy finances and rebellious kids and terrible relationships and cleaning all of that up for his glory and for our good. But, but what is our responsibility? The church has become really famous for, for this, you know, let go and let God. Well, that has got to be one of the most unbiblical things you can possibly say. We have a responsibility. And so I'm going to give you three responsibilities that we have to clean up the mess. Number one, choose holiness over happiness. You know, we are in a world that thinks that we deserve to be happy. Marriages end because someone thinks they deserve to be happy. And we have Christian people who, who honestly believe that, that God wants you happy. And I would say, no, God wants you holy. And you see this in Judah. His brother has just been sold into slavery, and, and Judah leaves the, the Hebrew brothers to marry a Canaanite woman. He chose happiness over holiness. When you pursue happiness, you're pursuing a self-centered life. To pursue happiness means you want your will, your way, and in your time. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that God's greatest concern is that you'll be happy. The messages of the Scripture is that we are to choose holiness. We're to die to ourselves. We're to take up our cross. We're to follow Him. Because when you pursue holiness, you get happiness then as a bonus. But if all you do is pursue happiness, you will never get to holiness. I love the saying, there are but two choices on the shelf, pleasing God and pleasing self. Two choices, either please God or please yourself. Choose holiness over happiness. Number two, choose obedience over obstinance. To be obstinate is to be stubborn. Judah knew God's will, but he stubbornly refused to do it. You know, th this text, when you look at this chapter in the middle, this 38, and you, you look at 37 and 39, especially 39, is, is this text is like a, like a black backdrop. If you've ever bought like a diamond or, or some type of fine jewelry, is, is, is the, the salesman will, will put a black piece of uh, velvet there, and then he'll put that shiny ring right in the middle of it. Genesis 38 is the black velvet. Right? It's the impurity. It's the perversion. You know what 39 is? Purity. It's Joseph over and over and over again choosing to do what's right. Joseph wasn't a perfect man. He was a righteous man. Joseph becomes ruler of Egypt. And he's faced with his, uh, he comes face to face with his brothers after years and years. 
And then he holds Simeon hostage as he tries to figure out, like, what am I going to do next with these brothers who did me such wrong? And so Joseph hides a cup in Benjamin's bag. Remember, Benjamin is his full brother, his only full brother. He's his father's new favorite son. And Reuben didn't know it was Joseph, but immediately Reuben's like, I think this is because of what we did to Joseph. Years and years. You, you just know these guys, their conscience has been just rattling them. And, and so they don't know, like, what do we do? And, and then you get to Genesis 44, and it, it's the climax of the Joseph story. Because in, in Genesis 44, it looks like Joseph is, is going to steal Benjamin. It looks like he's going to finally pay back his brothers for what they did to him. Like we think of Joseph and we think of a guy that's like, yeah, well, you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? Like these, these little cliches and no, 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 that's not that Joseph. Joseph is tricking his brothers. He's accusing them for what he did, I'm sorry, uh, for what they did to them. And then he accuses them of stealing from him. Well, who do you think it is that stands up? Judah does. The same Judah that had the idea of selling him to the Midianites. The same Judah that disobeyed God and married a Canaanite. The same Judah who, who raised at least two sons that were so bad, God killed them. The same Judah that slept with a harlot and then said that his daughter-in-law needed to be burned for being a harlot. This Judah, who knows, maybe he's looking across the room and, and he's seeing Benjamin just trembling with fear. This Judah stands up. You know what he says? Look at Genesis 44. So Judah said... What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But then he said, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. <coughs> this is Joseph speaking. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And then Judah approached him and said, Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we, we have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, whoever, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see this man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn in pieces. And I have not seen him since. And if you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Your dad's going to die if he's here, 
if, he, if you take him. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. And then look what he says here. I highlighted it in my, t- in my notes. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For, I f- for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. Judah has changed so much that he is willing to sacrifice, to lay his life down for his brother. And, and I believe that it is this speech, I believe that it is his willingness to be Benjamin's substitute that, that, that breaks Joseph's heart in 45. Because immediately after this, Joseph gets all the Egyptians out of the room and he exposes his identity to his brothers. And then that's when he says, what, 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 uh, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's when he says, no, God is the one that sent me here, not you. He learned that. Where did he get that from? Judah's repentance. We saw it in 38. Joseph doesn't see it until 44. Which is a great way for us to close this. Number three, choose repentance over revenge. Choose repentance over revenge. Judah was trusting in the sovereignty of God. And the one, Judah, who used to live for himself, was now willing to lay his life down for his brother. And while he didn't know it then, there was going to be a day that would come when someone from his tribe would actually lay down his life as a substitute for the sins of the world. And it is Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And we know love, John says, because he he laid down his life for us. Now listen, remember at the beginning of the sermon, we looked forward to future glory to, to try to make sense of 38. That doesn't just help us to get through 38. It gives us hope for today. If you're in Christ, do you realize that it may be a mess right now? It's not an accidental mess. There, there is hope for your future. You are going to share in the inheritance of the saints with the lion from the tribe of Judah. And if you are not in Christ, then that first step of cleaning up your mess is to choose repentance. It's to trust in Christ dying in your place as your substitute for your sin. And if you have never trusted him like that, oh my goodness, why not now? Father, thank you so much for the messiness of 38 and the messiness of our lives to be able to look forward to the revelation, to Revelation 5 and to see the the redemption of all of people from all people and tribes and tongues and nations. God, what a glorious thought it is that though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because he has died for us, that we will live for him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's stand.